0: The LensPod is a medical student-run podcast for educational purposes only and reflects the opinions of the hosts and guests. Material discussed should not be used for the medical treatment or management of anyone's eyes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The LensPod, a medical student ophthalmology podcast. My name is Chris.
1: And I'm Anne.
0: And we are your medical student hosts for this episode.
1: In this episode, we speak with Dr. Jimmy Hu to learn about what medical students should know before their first cornea clinic and OR.
0: Dr. Who attended medical school at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, where he continued on to complete his ophthalmology residency at the Montefiore Medical Center. After a brief stint in Baltimore to complete his Cornea External Diseases and Refractive Surgery Fellowship at Johns Hopkins, he is currently back in New York City as a private practice cornea specialist and part-time faculty at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Who.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Before we start, we like to get to know our guests a bit better through a quick icebreaker. Is there anything you've read or watched or listened to or did lately that you really enjoyed and would recommend to our listeners?
2: Over the course of 2020, one of my side projects was to get into hydroponic gardening. And this largely came about because I've always been into houseplants and I've had a collection. And living in New York City where I have an apartment that does not have a balcony or any outdoor space, I wanted to have... Some kind of source of fresh herbs since we were all locked up in quarantine and everyone was cooking at home. I ended up building myself my own hydroponic garden, and this came about from me going down a Reddit rabbit hole and um, doing this whole ridiculous uh, DIY setup, going to Target, getting like some $4 storage container, a plastic cutter, some foam net pots, and some cuttings of herbs and seeds from one of my friends and planting it so now i've got my own home hydroponic garden that i use (laughs) for a source of basil and rosemary (laughs) that's amazing
0: sounds delicious
1: that's great Um, our next question is actually do you have any books or podcasts or media recommendations for medical students interested in ophthalmology
2: i'd say if you were to pick any one resource or if you were to pick at least one resource to start off with I would probably recommend the Tim Root website, uh, timroot.com. Um, I especially do recommend his tutorial video about how a slit lamp works and how to use it and the different ways a slit lamp can be used. In general, ophthalmology, similar to radiology in that regard, um, 90% of your diagnosis and getting to your answer is based off of the physical exam and what you see. So. The most important thing is to be able to learn how to use the tools and equipment in order to see all the things that we see in ophthalmology and arrive at the medical conclusions that we get to.
0: So moving on to our introduction to the field of cornea, can we start by just asking broadly, what is the cornea subspecialty and what makes it unique? What are some of your favorite aspects of the cornea subspecialty?
2: So I think one of the interesting or odd aspects in terms of how cornea as a subspecialty has evolved over the last few decades is you're not truly a cornea subspecialist in the sense that you're not dealing with just the cornea. You're really an anterior segment specialist. You've got your glaucoma docs who specialize in the optic nerve. You've got your retina docs who are essentially posterior segment specialists, neuro-ophthalmology docs who are dealing with everything posterior to the optic nerve and everything else in and out and in between, oculoplastics that's dealing with everything outside of the eyeball itself, and cornea which is really just the front part of the eye. Cornea as a subspecialty I've often thought of as the bipolar subspecialty within ophthalmology (laughs) because on one end you've got the crazy sick very very difficult train wreck blood and guts cornea patients those who have got nasty infections autoimmune disease ulcers scars and terrible vision you're just trying to save the eye and prevent the patient from going blind and then on the other end you've got your young sexy high expectations refractive patients who just really want to see as best as possible some of them may be athletes some of them may be actors and actresses some of them are very overly obsessed with appearances and want to be glasses free no matter what Um, and others are just really obsessed about having the best possible vision Mm. so it's bipolar in that regard and in that sense there's not much in between And I think that's something that as a cornea doc, you end up having to both reconcile as well as embrace wholeheartedly. Yes, there's going to be your random comprehensive patients who are in that in-between zone, but it is funny how split um, a lot of the pathologies and patient demographics can be.
0: Very cool. Any overarching tips or perspective for medical students rotating through cornea?
2: I think in general as an attending i don't expect med students to know anything about cornea as a whole or to be able to make a diagnosis i mean in general that's why you're in med school and that's why you're going to a residency its to learn this stuff um but when i do have a med student rotating through my clinic or in my or i want them to be curious i want them to ask a bajillion questions even if they're stupid i want them to get a sense of or at least appreciate what's normal and what's not normal, and to that end, to look at the eye through a slit lamp and say, oh, well, that spot probably should not be there. What the
1: hell is that? And ask about it. That sounds reasonable and really nice of you, too, (laughs) with your medical students. Um, So as we transition into some of the more common pathologies that you may treat in cornea clinics, can we do a brief overview of the anatomy and function of the cornea, so maybe the five layers, and any specific tips for the cornea portion of the slit-lamp exam?
2: Sure. So, in general, the cornea has five different layers. Most tissue that you learn about in histology is all about three, but in cornea we like to feel special about that, say that we have five. Um, (laughs) The outermost layer is the epithelium, which is the case for every mucous membrane in the body. Below that is the Bowman's layer, uh, which is sort of like a pseudo basement membrane. And then below that, the meat of the cornea is the stroma. It's kind of what stroma means in general. Um, below that is Descemet's membrane, which is a fancy name for the true basement membrane of the cornea. And then behind that is the endothelium. Um, I should probably start at the anterior most portion so the epithelium again that's like basically just skin on the surface of the eye and it's going to act as a protective barrier amongst other things it's also prone to getting scratched a lot and when you think about mucous membranes in general if you had braces at one point or if you you accidentally cut the inside of your mouth or your lip while trying to chew something sharp and you scratch the inside of your mouth that hurts like hell and it's because you know that's a very sensitive part of your body problem is the cornea is way more sensitive it's got the highest density of nerve endings anywhere in the human body so when patients scratch their eye it really does hurt like hell even if it's a really tiny paper cut size scratch and they're miserable they're covering their eye they're tearing they're asking for any kind of pain medication and some patients might do seemingly ridiculous things in order to relieve that pain because at that point you don't care you're just in horrible pain and you want to do anything that you think might make it better. Mm-hmm. We're rather fortunate in general that, much like the inside of your mouth as a mucous membrane, the epithelium of the cornea tends to heal pretty quickly. But there are all sorts of medical conditions, such as diabetes, that can cause someone to have decreased ability to heal. And then there are all sorts of issues that you worry about um, as a result of that. Um, The epithelium can get scratched. But fortunately, much like skin elsewhere, it can heal. Sometimes it leaves a scar, but overall it can heal. The stroma can also get scratched. That can leave a scar. That doesn't always heal nicely. When you think about refractive surgeries like LASIK and PRK, you're basically using a laser to reshape the cornea. And that's the nice way of putting it, but we're basically intentionally making a very calculated, precise eczema laser burn to the stroma of the eye in order to just ablate and remove tissue. And the goal is to do so in a way that doesn't cause scarring and it means that a patient can see better afterwards. Uh, if we were to talk about the cornea itself and the exam, again, the slamp, it's a microscope. It's a heavily modified one. And how you use it, that's going to be just as important, if not possibly more important than how your internist uses their stethoscope. So much of ophthalmology is based off your physical exam, and you can make all sorts of crazy conjectures about a patient based off of what you see on their eyeball um, underneath the microscope. Um again this is another tangent here but if you ever look up the history behind Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's character Sherlock Holmes um That was written about Arthur Conan Doyle's time as a medical student, Um, and he wrote the books as an ophthalmologist later on in life, uh, largely about his experience shadowing um, a Dr. Joseph Bell, who was a general surgeon, um, on the medical wards. And that became the basis for the Holmes character because he would make all sorts of crazy deductions about patients based off of the physical exam.
0: Very cool. Thanks for going into some of the detail about uh, the importance of the physical exam when working up a patient but there's also a lot of different tools available to the cornea Mm -hmm. specialist to work up certain diseases. Uh, Can you talk about some of the unique imaging uh, options or tests that a medical student might encounter in cornea clinic for the first time?
2: Absolutely. So I think the most basic thing that you're going to come across is um, we as ophthalmologists use eye drops a lot for diagnostic reasons, for therapeutic reasons, for anesthetic reasons, they are our tools for every single um, aspect of our practice and most of the nox implements that you'll come across involve some sort of eye drop or um, dye the main one is fluorescein which is a vegetable dye it's i found out recently it's the same dye that's found in uh, neon yellow bic highlighters Uh Um,
0: so if you're ever out of drops, you can just you know hit them with the highlighter
2: yeah Not the most reassuring thing to a patient when you're, like, there with a white coat holding up a highlighter, but (laughs) yeah. It is, oddly enough, the exact same um, dye that's used. Mm. Uh, And it fluoresces under a cobalt blue light filter. The nice thing about this dye is that it can uh, form a meniscus with your tears, and that's the basis by which glaucoma docs will applanate and check pressure on someone's eye. Another aspect of this dye is that it's going to highlight any cuts, scrapes, areas of dryness, and... Um, You can look at pictures of dry eyes, of corneal ulcers, of um, leaks from wounds, and it's going to really highlight a lot of that pathology. No pun intended there. (laughs) But it's not the only dye that cornea docs use. It's the most common dye that ophthalmologists as a whole use because it's so very versatile and useful in that regard. Um, but the two others that are commonly used by cornea docs specifically are lissamine Green and Rose Bengal, and they have very similar effects. The backstory is that Rose Bengal is a little bit older. In some places it can be a little bit cheaper, but it's also more irritating to the eye. Um, Whereas listamine green is a little bit gentler, but depending on the situation, it doesn't always highlight things quite as well. But it's also um, not as toxic to the surface of the eye and a little bit gentler from an irritation standpoint. Um, But they are both going to highlight a lot of pathology on the eye, especially mucin layer defects of the corneal tear film. And you'll most often encounter these dyes when checking or examining a patient for ocular herpes. The other thing that you'll do in cornea clinic there's a i mean ophthalmologists as a whole we like our toys and there are lots and lots of toys um that are unique to each specialty i think the most common fancy expensive toy that cornea docs like to use is the corneal topographer or keratometer and they can have different names the most common one that you'll come across is called a pentacam Um, that's one particular brand for a what's called a scheinflug corneal topographer, and Scheimflug is just a technology that's used to image and map the surface of somebody's eyeball, um, their cornea. It's going to give you as a doc um, a way to generate almost like a topographical type map of the surface of somebody's eye, and then there's all sorts of subtle pathologies that you can pick up with it, that even things that you may not see on a slit lamp exam, because it's quite literally measuring just microns of difference.
1: I think many medical students will have done a visual acuity exam by their first time rotating through ophthalmology, but on their ophthalmology rotation, they'll be exposed to a full refractive exam, and in particular to the concept of astigmatism. So could you help explain for our our listeners what is astigmatism?
2: Astigmatism, I mean, everyone who wears glasses um, may have heard of or they may have heard of astigmatism, and it really just refers to an irregularity over the surface of somebody's cornea. We would like to think that our cornea is a nice, perfectly round dome, and ideally it would be, but it's sometimes more ovoid in shape, or elliptical in shape, and because of that, light rays coming onto the or hitting the surface of the cornea may not be bent in a nice uniform equal manner and that lack of uniformity is going to be called an astigmatism. Um, Because of that, you can grossly divide them up into two broad categories. There's regular astigmatism, um, which is common and uh, easily corrected with glasses or soft contact lenses, and then there's irregular astigmatism, which You know, a normal healthy person isn't going to come across, fortunately, too often. Um, But those who've had scars on their uh, eye or um, prior surgery or trauma or anything um, like that, they may have irregular astigmatism. There's also a good number of types of corneal pathology that can cause or induce someone to have irregular astigmatism, where light rays can be bent in an uneven manner and it's so uneven that a pair of glasses will not correct for it.
0: Hmm. Do you typically only diagnose irregular versus regular astigmatism from topography, or are you able to get it just from the refractive exam?
2: A very good way of trying to figure out if somebody has regular versus irregular astigmatism is when you're trying to use a phoropter, or you're trying to measure somebody for a pair of glasses, and you're adjusting and adjusting and adjusting, and you find that despite no matter what you do, they still cannot see the 20-20 line, um, and they don't have any other clear, obvious, visible pathology, there's a good chance that they have some irregular astigmatism. A good example is, or I think a common diagnosis that you'll come across in cornea clinic is either a corneal scar that can cause irregular astigmatism, there's a pterygium, which is a UV light induced like it's basically a solar elastosis degeneration um, and that can also create this fleshy growth-like pattern over the cornea, and that can also cause an irregular astigmatism. Um, And then the other common one that you'll come across, or the other common diagnosis you'll come across in cornea clinic is called keratoconus, and that usually implies a genetic cause for irregular astigmatism. And it does so in a very specific manner. Um, As the name implies, it's called kerato for the cornea, and then cone, because the cornea uh, over time adopts a cone-like shape. The thought process behind that is you've got some sort of underlying structural abnormality to the cornea, usually something to do with collagen, and there are some very well-documented associations with other collagen defects or issues, things like Ehlers-Danlos or Marfans, where if they have that, they're also more likely to have keratoconus. But the gist of it is that the structural integrity of the cornea is not quite so strong as a healthy one, and it's going to progressively warp and deform and adopt this cone-like shape. And because of that, well, if you're trying to look through a cone versus a dome, um, you have a lot of scattering of light in the very center of that cone, and you can't see so clearly. Um, A lot of patients have horrible glare, shadows around lights, um, halos, and all sorts of crazy distortions and no matter what and especially as the disease gets more advanced um no matter what you're trying to do with a pair of glasses they still can't see clearly i think a good example of that is i believe steph curry the um basketball player
0: oh he's keratoconus oh yeah he's probably
2: one of the better examples of it and so because of that they end up wearing these very special uh hard Plastic contact lenses. They're custom fit for everybody's eye. Um, I guess sh- um, I should mention that uh, since we're talking about refractive exams, uh, one important thing that you can use, or one important thing that you can say to impress your cornea attending when rotating through cornea clinic, is that any patient who's considering any kind of refractive laser vision correction like uh, LASIK, PRK, or um, I guess the newer technology is called SMILE. Um, as a physician, you have to make sure that they don't have irregular astigmatism because the concern is if you were to do any kind of surgery on someone with irregular astigmatism, um, those surgeries are all done assuming someone has regular astigmatism. And as a physician, you're trying to be absolutely sure that they don't have irregular astigmatism. You'll often do a coil topography measurement such as with the pentacam to rule that out even very very subtle cases because in general if you were to do something then that irregular astigmatism would become worse mm. and that's what we call a corneal ectasia, where there's destabilization irregularity and progressive warpage of the cornea keratoconus is actually a type of corneal ectasia, but it's a genetic cause whereas there's surgically induced causes of corneal ectasia as well uh, laser being a good example.
0: Gotcha. You mentioned that corneal ulcer was also a potential cause of astigmatism. Uh, so moving on to our next topic as a former contact lens wearer who was not necessarily the best at taking out my contacts before napping, uh, can you help guide me and our listeners through your workup of corneal ulcers and why they're so important to identify and pre- prevent?
2: Mm. I think I did just cringe a little when you said that you used to sleep in your contacts. Um, <laughs> Please say I, think I can sh- still become an ophthalmologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in general, I mean, every doctor, no matter what specialty, they'll find that their little habits or the things that they worry about tend to be affected by um, small, mild cases of PTSD where you have or you come across a patient with like a very sad story or a bad outcome or or a mistake um, on their end, or uh, even something atrogenic, or uh, something that they've encountered through the medical system. And you do everything that you can in order to prevent something like that uh, uh, from happening in somebody else. And I think because of that, I've got terrible bias as a cornea doc, because I've seen so many contact lens related issues, anywhere from mild scratches or scars on somebody's eye, all the way down to quite literally somebody losing their eye over, Mm. um, an infection that they got from wearing improperly fitted contact lenses or sleeping in their contact lenses. Um, I've seen both, unfortunately. Um, actually in a bit of a tangent, one of the photos that I sent you was a lady who literally lost, eventually lost her eye, but that's what it looked like when she first came into the ER. Um, there was a fluorescein stain, um, a bright yellow that you see um and the patient's eye being propped open you see there's this cosmetic contact lens and underneath is like this giant ball of like yellowish white because it's fluorescing um the yellow dye there, pooling and mixing together with pus
0: oh, no, no, no. oh wow yeah. those will be in our show notes for our listeners if you want to see Sure, Um, But yes,
2: so ulcers by definition are infections of the cornea and they are sometimes quite nasty and they can cause somebody to permanently lose vision or the eye. Um, The best case scenario is that they have a mild scar that doesn't significantly affect their vision and then there's a whole spectrum of what can happen in terms of sequelae. It is a good question to ask your attending in terms of um, what are the consequences or sequelae of a corneal ulcer versus just a corneal abrasion. And invariably, every corneal doc is going to pause, look up at the ceiling, sigh wistfully, and then think about some of their worst (laughs) cases that they've come across. Um, And then even when you're rotating through the clinic, you might come across a corneal ulcer, especially at an academic training institution. the resident clinic will often see a lot of those Um, but as the name implies they're an infection there's always going to be an infiltrate there's usually something fluffy white on exam that's going to be a combination of melting corneal stroma that's all swollen, edematous, since we're docs we should use the fancy terms so it's going to be edematous, it might be a little translucent gray from the stromal collagen network being destabilized and uh, degenerating. It's going to light up with that fluorescein stain, that yellow dye that every ophthalmologist loves to use and it's going to glow under the blue light filter that you use there too. In general, since it is an infection, your goal is to first culture that ulcer, and there are a few exceptions to when you don't culture the ulcer, but most of the time you do, and that's another good question to ask your cornea doc, when and when not to. But in general, everyone's going to culture it, and then what you'll see ophthalmologists do that it seems like no other branch of medicine will do is we will plate those cultures ourselves. We will quite literally take the swab stick and get out the petri dishes and swab it ourselves. And the rationale behind that is, well, this is not like a blood sample. It's not like you can get a huge amount of sample to try and grow something. Your diagnostic yield from trying to swab and get a culture of a corneal ulcer is very low because the amount of material that you get is so very low as well. So because of that, you don't want to lose material in trying to stick it into a test tube and send it off to a lab somewhere. You're going to plate that yourself
1: mm-hmm.
2: and get the most sample that you possibly can. And even then, some, uh, something may not grow.
0: And then you treat empirically. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And then everyone's going to start with empiric treatment using some sort of broad spectrum antibiotic. Um, the really nasty uh, cases you'll often come across will involve treating with fortified, specially compounded vancomycin and either tobromycin or eye drops for gram-positive and gram-negative coverage. Um, in milder cases, then you might use a broad spectrum fluoroquinolone like amoxifloxacin. The brand name is Vigamox. Mm -hmm. Um, But dosing is going to be different. Usually those eye drops, you're telling the patient to use them every hour or every two hours or sometimes even every half an hour. And the goal is just to bathe the shit out of the surface of the eye with just antibiotic solution.
0: Gotcha. I just want to make sure we covered it. The difference between a corneal abrasion and a corneal ulcer is the thickness involved
2: no it's actually whether there's a true infection or not um Mm. and it's funny because i had this conversation with the resident earlier today a coronal abrasion it's really just someone scratching the surface of their eye Um, epithelium is there's going to be a break in epithelium so you'll see an epithelial defect that will light up with the fluorescein stain and um sometimes stroma may be involved or cut as well but there's no infection there and i feel like as a whole medicine is very judicious about antibiotic stewardship, but ophthalmologists are not, paradoxically. We tend to want to give every patient some kind of antibiotic eye drop, and at least for corneal abrasions, the reason behind that is the chance of a superinfection is quite high, and the risk of a superinfection is a corneal ulcer, and that can cause someone to have permanent loss of vision. So mm-hmm. you're going to give them some kind of antibiotic eye drop largely for prophylactic reasons, um, to reduce your chance of a superinfection infection or um, an opportunistic infection, now that epithelium has been violated, um, while the cornea itself is healing and re-epithelizing by its own mechanisms.
0: Gotcha. Thank you. So moving on to, from the clinic to the cornea OR, what are some of the most common surgeries that you perform as a cornea surgeon?
2: so myself as a corneal surgeon again it's a very bipolar specialty i perform corneal transplant surgeries like um, and they have different names depending on the technique as well as how much cornea you're transplanting um and then i also do refractive surgeries um that involves things like lasik prk smile and then something called icls uh, which are intraocular lens implants and that's kind of like a heavily modified, it's often uh, described as a contact lens with somebody's glasses prescription in it placed inside the eye, but that's not quite the best description. It's more like a lens prosthesis that goes inside somebody's eyeball and it sits on front or in front of their natural lens.
0: Gotcha. So since our audience are mostly medical students in academic Mm -hmm. centers, I think we, yeah. we can focus more on some of the more cornea transplant surgical options. So first, Absolutely. why might a patient need a corneal transplant? And then what are the surgical options for them?
2: Yeah. So I believe it was one of my longstanding old mentors who told me that when you're not sure what's going on with the cornea, image the cornea. And that's a great time to use that pentagram uh, topography or corneal topography device um, which can pick up subtle pathologies. Um, I think in general the two most common corneal diseases that someone might need a transplant in a non-urgent or emergent setting uh, would be either keratoconus or Fuchs corneal dystrophy which is um, the name is called Fuchs corneal endothelodystrophy and uh, by that definition you can understand the problem with the eye is the endothelium so for the for keratoconus um, the shape of the eye is warped and distorted and that's the primarily the stroma Um, that's warped it's distorted sometimes it may even be scarred and your goal is to replace all of that and restore a more normal type of curvature to a person's eye And that's going to involve either a full thickness corneal transplant, which is called a penetrating keratoplasty, or a DALK, which stands for deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty, at which point you're replacing the entire front portion of the cornea, the epithelium, the uh, Bowman's layer than the stroma and the only thing that you're leaving intact of the patient is maybe a little bit of posterior stroma as well as dashmase membrane and the endothelium because for the patient the host that's normal dalk is the newer variant of pk as a surgery as a whole and it's because now the goal for ophthalmologists is to replace only a portion of the cornea from a long-term medical standpoint the thought is that you're transplanting less tissue there's less exposure of the inside of somebody's eye to foreign tissue and so there's a lower chance of graft rejection Mm -hmm. um and you're also going to affect the structural integrity of the eye to a lesser extent and so the eye is going to be a little bit more stable corneal transplant surgery as a whole is considered the most successful kind of transplant surgery in the history of medicine. It's also the oldest and it's because the cornea is avascular, there are no blood vessels and so there's not many opportunities for your body's immune system to be exposed to foreign donor tissue and so you're less likely to mount an immune reaction to foreign donor tissue on the cornea. Because of that, corneal transplant patients, they're not getting horrible immunosuppressants or systemic drugs. Um, They're not needing to go on lifelong um, immunosuppression with these crazy, very expensive um, immunologics with bad systemic side effects. They're really just using steroid eye drops, and they're often using them for either a period of several years after surgery to sometimes just a drop a day for the rest of their life. Um, Yes, every patient has a lifelong risk of graft rejection, but again, it's usually just treatable with steroid eye drops, and the prognosis as a whole is a lot better than, again, any other kind of organ transplant. We're also very lucky in the United States because the United States is the only country in the world that does not have a shortage of donor corneas. That's largely because of the benefit of the Eye Bank Association of America, which is, as the name implies, it's a network of different eye banks that will harvest organ donors um, and their corneas, and then preserve them in a special preserved media, and then store it for use for anybody. It also means that we have the benefit of being able to schedule transplant surgery, which is not something that in general, most other branches of medicine can do, except in maybe very uh, extenuating circumstances when they're really, really lucky. We can schedule it, and we can have donor corneal tissue flown in from all over the country to everywhere else in the country. I performed three corneal transplant surgeries earlier this morning, and the corneas came from Florida, San Diego, and Portland, Oregon, uh, Mm -hmm. respectively.
1: It's really impressive having a all this network and being able to schedule patients in the OR.
0: Is there any kind of matching that you have to do between donor and host?
1: Like the concepts of HLA that we've learned.
2: So again, um, in general, the short answer is no. Because the cornea is avascular, there's not as much concern over trying to HLA uh, submatch. Um, I think there were a couple clinical studies done some time back trying to figure out whether that was significant or not, but the end result was that at least any significance it had uh, was not worth trying to pick and choose and test. Um, It's also crazy because, again, when you have the luxury of preserving corneal donor tissue for up to a week in like special storage media and then shipping it around to the country well since this is happening on a national level in a fairly recently high volume how do we make that work and how do we uh, figure out the transport logistics and the crazy short answer is it comes from fedex overnight express <laughs>
1: wow. it's really amazing yeah I guess a little transition into like medical students joining the OR for the first time. Are there any expectations or maybe some tips for medical students joining so they can have a nice learning experience in the cornea OR?
2: I think the best advice I can give any medical student, whether they're in the OR or even the clinic, is to ask targeted questions. Don't ask, what is that? Or... um, what's that or what am I seeing? Um, Try and ask a question that shows that you know a little bit about what's going on, but you're not sure exactly what's going on. And to that end, say, you know, which corneal transplant, you know, I see that we have, you know, corneal donor tissue here. What kind of surgery are we doing? Um, Is it a full thickness? Is it a partial thickness transplant? And why? Ask, uh, oh, so I was shadowing this attending and they did this surgery this way. And then now I'm in... your clinic or your OR, and I see that you do things a little bit differently, um, what is the reason behind that?" And they'll usually give you one in general. Every doctor as well as surgeon has a slightly different style and technique, and some of it may come down to personal preference and comfort, and every technique or style is going to have inherently some advantage and disadvantage, but every attending will know that and they will know why. and they're more than happy to talk about it. And they're usually excited when a med student asks them something like that because it means that the med student at least has some basic understanding of what's going on and they want to know more detail. And they're innately curious. Um, I think one great example is there's something called DMEC and DSEC and a lot of corneal transplant um, surgeons love to talk about those because they're the newer uh, techniques involved in corneal transplant surgery. They involve just trying to transplant the posterior most portions of the cornea and the difference from a conceptual standpoint is just how much corneal tissue you're transplanting. But there's all sorts of subtle nuances between the two surgeries, as well as a lot of different techniques in terms of how each of those two surgeries are done. And it's a great thing to ask your cornea attending in the OR, why do you choose to do a DSEC surgery this way? Um, Why do you choose to do a DMEC surgery that way? And there's a lot of variation in that and why do you choose to use this device or that equipment or that gas versus air Um, and it's a great thing to show that you know something about what that surgery involves to your tending um, and you want to know more about the technique and their particular style and the inherent advantages and disadvantages to it
0: Uh, And for our listeners, uh, DMEC is uh, decimase membrane's endothelial keratoplasty, and DSEC is decimase stripping endothelial keratoplasty. And just to summarize the different types of coronal transplant surgeries, it was um, PKP for the full thickness. DOC is the front, the anterior portion. Um, It's like
2: the anterior 90% thickness.
0: Yes, and DMEC Mm -hmm. and DSEC are the back parts of it. Is that correct, Mm -hmm. Dr. Hu? Yeah. Okay, awesome.
1: Yeah. And in terms of the technique, is it through like videos that you would recommend us to like learn and watch and see beforehand?
2: So as a med student starting out, again, I don't um, expect a med student to know a whole lot, but I do want them to be curious about it. And yes, um, the more you know, the better, but you never you never want to act in a way that you're trying to show off what you know. Um, it's more the, oh, I saw this video Like, I watched a video of, like, this kind of surgery, but I see that you're, you know, you, Dr. So-and-so, you're doing it a little bit different than what I saw in the video. In the video, they did this, and I didn't see you do that. Um, I wasn't quite sure what you did instead, but you did something different instead. Um, What exactly did you do, and why did you choose to do it that way? And you could say something along those lines for pretty much every kind of surgery, no matter what medical specialty you're in, and every attending is going to love to talk about it.
1: Okay. (laughs) So this is one of the last parts of the podcast, and what are the most important skills you recommend that medical students practice during their cornea rotation?
2: I think just whenever you're on any kind of ophthalmology rotation, you should know how to um, check vision, uh, patient's pupils, as well as get a sense, or at least try and learn um, how to check a patient's pressure. And your, you can ask your friendly neighborhood attending a resident, they will very happily show you or at least try and get you uh, to a basic understanding of how to check that. Beyond that, the next thing is to focus on working on your exam skills because with ophthalmology, seeing is not believing, seeing is being able to diagnose. And we really rely on our exam skills to get to our successful diagnosis and from there assess and make a treatment plan.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hu, for taking the time today to prepare our listeners for the cornea service. I'm sure medical students at various levels of training learned something today and will be applying what they learned to their ophthalmology rotation. Would you like to plug any of your social media or any other projects?
2: I had two other quarantine side projects that did relate to being an ophthalmologist. Um, One was to compile a YouTube channel of just surgical videos that at least I personally have done. And that's just in terms of showing med students, residents, as well as my colleagues, just one variation or one particular style of corneal transplant surgery or other types of corneal surgeries. That I'm sure is going to be in a link somewhere. And then the other side project that I had was just to try and build a patient information website. Um, this was largely based off of my frustrations with trying to find a good patient information website for little printouts or leaflets to give to patients saying, hey, you have this condition and I know that full well, whatever I say, you're going to remember maybe about half of it. So here's at least a little bit more reading information in terms of where to start about what you have. Um, what symptoms uh, you can expect from it that some of which you may be having some of which you may not be having but if you have new symptoms manifest don't be surprised about it and then what can we do to treat it and then also what to expect. Um, I used to go over like the patient information handout sections of uptodate.com, which I know a lot of the internal medicine docs love to use and med students love to use for general medicine things, but I found that it was horribly lacking when it came to ophthalmology. And then a lot of the vision information uh, websites out there, they were often populated and written by optometrists or pharmaceutical companies. And the optometry websites they were fantastic in terms of explaining things but they didn't really go into detail about the interventional treatment options since optometrists don't perform surgery on the eye Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, so there was a lack a horrible lack of information from that standpoint in my opinion and then the pharma websites were often just pushing product so I tried to build something a little bit more useful that at least I as a doc could use myself that I could just then print out and give to my patients.
0: Gotcha. And where is that accessible for our listeners, or is that just for your own private usage?
2: Uh, no, that's also, I made it available in the public domain, um, and there's going to be a link to that in the show notes as well.
0: Okay. Great. You know the line. Uh, well, and that's amazing, Dr. Who. I, I got a chance to see one of the videos that you had sent before, and uh, to our listeners, I, I highly recommend you check out at least, at the very least, the video about um, the running penetrating keratoplasty, because... Really, that was uh, just like a beautiful thing to watch. Um, just from a purely aesthetic purpose, even. Like, <laughs> it's very satisfying. So thank you very much, Dr. Who, for sharing that. And thank you very much for coming on. That's my
2: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. And to learn more about The Lens, you can follow us on Twitter at at lens underscore O-P-H. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get easy to read summaries of the latest ophthalmology research in your inbox every week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs> bye. <Bye-bye. laughs>